0: And welcome back to the Mindful Sport Performance Podcast. I'm Dr. Keith Kaufman. I'm Dr. Tim Pinnell.
1: And I'm Taylor Brown. And we are back here for part two of our conversation regarding competition and mindfulness. And we decided to do a part two because last episode, we really just scratched the surface. I think we just started just opened up uh, Pandora's box in terms of this conversation. And uh, I left the episode really, really thinking about uh, a lot. Uh, And I was heading up to Boston on a bus. Um, Our team was competing ahead of the Charles this past weekend. And so I had about six hours to sit down and, uh, get my thoughts into a more of a cohesive reflection on all of this and, and coming from the coaching perspective. Um, so before I jump into that, Keith, I, I don't know, or Tim, I don't know if you guys have anything to say, but, uh, yeah, I want to, I want to give you that opportunity before I just
0: jump in. I'll just say, I'm, I'm excited to hear what you have to say, Taylor, because I know right after we finished recording the last episode, you're like, oh, I need to sit with this for a little while and kind of just see how I feel about everything and make sense of everything. And, you know, I love that our conversation got to some deeper places last time, maybe, maybe deeper than than we imagined when we first set this as a topic. Um, and then when you told us that you had, what did you say, four pages of single space thoughts of reflection on this, I, I am I am just eager to hear what you have to say same
2: yeah i'm i'm really glad we're doing part two i i got yeah, to keep this conversation going um and yeah to see where else it to see where else it takes us i'm I'm very curious to hear what what you ended up coming up with
1: yeah well i hope i haven't ever sold myself um, <laughs> but i think just for just for our listeners uh maybe if if anyone hasn't list, listened to the previous um conversation we had maybe maybe a a good thing to go in and and listen to prior to this episode but i just wanted to give a little synopsis of kind of where we started and kind of how it (laughs) evolved and where we got to and i'm going to try to keep it short but um kind of one of the main themes that that came out of the last episode was the contextualization and decontextualization of mindfulness um and its recent kind of commercialization and what that has created um, uh, with with mindfulness, uh, I guess you could say it's kind of created a different version, a more stripped down version of mindfulness, a more narrow version of mindfulness that that we sometimes refer to as mic mindfulness. Um, and it's just uh, as Tim referred to in the previous episode, mindfulness is really mushrooming um, right now in society instead of what we would like to see, which would be um, kind of more blossoming. Um, And we really spent some time around the idea of if mindfulness and competition are really at odds with each other um, and do they, are they compatible? Um, You know, we, you know, Tim really talked about if you kind of look at mindfulness in the context of the larger philosophy behind it, um, you kind of see that there's a lot of these incompatibilities between mindfulness and competition um, namely, the kind of using mindfulness as uh, a tool towards an end. Um, and that kind of goes directly against the central ideas of non-striving non-attachment. Uh, mindfulness isn't supposed to really be used to get somewhere um, because of these kind of central core concepts of of the philosophy. Um, and Tim, you actually got to to some really deeper places there with you know, with the idea that uh, competition if you if you if you carry it out if you carry mindfulness out uh you see competition actually becomes kind of absurd because of the interconnectedness of everybody like if we're all the same why are we now competing why are we pitting each other against against uh each other um so i think i think that was really broad strokes about the conversation but uh we kind of got to this point where um uh Tim, I think, had made some really compelling arguments about why these two things really weren't compatible. But we also got to the point where we saw it was different shades of gray. And and Keith, you came in more towards the end and kind of made the uh, kind of argument that there were maybe different levels, and you could look at it. Um, you could look at mindfulness through through the lens of depth, you know, how how deep are we talking? Are we talking more of, of the kind of cognitive level and emotional level? Are we getting really down to the kind of philosophical underpinnings? And, and I think the compatibility really changes when you talk about different levels of depth uh, in the practice. So that really kind of, that's where I picked up in,
0: in my thoughts. Did I, a great reorientation. That was awesome. Did well, I characterize yeah. any of that wrong? I feel, I know it was like super broad, but like, I think that was kind of like the general idea. I don't know, Tim, did you totally come down on it being incompatible? I don't know that you had like, straight out said that, but I think some of what you said would suggest that a little bit.
2: Yeah, I would say that it's, yeah, it doesn't feel as clear cut to me that it's like, no, these things are are incompatible. But I think that like, well, yeah, I remember us talking a lot about like the way these like kind of paradoxes show up, um, and I think part of that is because you know we, you know, we started we alluded to this I think in the last episode, but like we're using language to talk about this stuff, right? And if we take it, you know, we take this initial Buddhist premise, right, that in some ways we are kind of living in a, in an illusion, and I mean, I think I used, you know, like physics or quantum physics maybe is an example of like well actually atoms are just mostly empty space and you know, and yet we experience solidity and so on one level we're describing this world that we see and that we interact with with these solid separate things but underneath it on this more fundamental level that's a lot harder to see we you know we realize oh it's it's not as it appears and so i think we're using this language based on what from this philosophical perspective philosophical perspective would say is kind of a, a, a bit of an erroneous illusion. And so how could a language based solely on describing an illusion be able to accurately convey this thing that's kind of behind behind the veil? And that's one of the reasons why I think these paradoxes come up. Uh, is because it's because it's the both and. It's like this really kind of sometimes hard to comprehend whole. Whereas And we see it. We see it in the work that we do. Like, as athletes, certainly athletes that I work with, as they embrace mindfulness, and I think mindfulness in this broader perspective, like, they absolutely become happier, healthier individuals, and they perform better. They engage more, and they get more out of their competitive experiences. And so clearly, it can't be wholly incompatible, you know, and yet... (laughs) I think, and this is the paradox, like part of what allows for that is by kind of divesting from how important this competition, the winning seems. So it, it almost requires you to let go of, of what is the quote unquote essence of competition to actually allow for mindfulness of competition to be compatible. It's kind of like the point I was making where it's like, if you look at the Four Noble Truths, it's like, well, the sensation of suffering includes in it the acceptance that suffering is here. Like, how can those two things go together? Well, how can they not go together? And so that is probably even a more confusing way to talk about it. Um, But yeah, so I don't think they are incompatible in as much as they are fit together in this kind of paradoxical way.
1: I'm glad you said the essence of competition, because that's kind of where I spent the bulk of my thinking about this. Um, I, as you know, and as our listeners probably know, am a college coach. And so I'm around a lot of athletes, I'm around a lot of coaches. And so I kind of use that as an informal opportunity to do some research. Mm -hmm. And that was, you know, we kind of left the episode and I was still um, ruminating ruminating on this question of like, why do we compete? And uh, that would be a question that I would want to know from athletes and and from coaches, I think the the question would be why is competition important? And so that's what I did. I wanted to understand a little bit more about what the essence of competition is, because I think that, yes, if we look at competition is it's solely about winning and or avoiding losing, Uh, then I could see like how that could, cause some more problematic compatibility issues with mindfulness. However, I kind of had this idea that, that it it was much more than about than about winning. And I just asked uh my entire team this weekend, why do you compete? And I had a number of conversations with athletes and coaches on this idea. In fact, I talked to uh three coaches about it and I probably talked to about 10 athletes about it. And Um, you know, I asked them this question before we left for the Charles uh, on Saturday or Friday. And then um, I just, throughout the weekend, I, whenever I was, you know, had a moment with an athlete, I'd say, so why do you compete? You know, what's, why do you do this thing? Um, And here are some of the answers I got. Uh, Mm -hmm. So um, these are some of the direct answers. And then I pulled out some themes and then I kind of had a little bit of a Think about it. Um, One said, competition is the reward I get for all my hard work. It's the expression of my efforts. Um, Another said, I like coming out on top. It's a deeply satisfying feeling. Another said, I love the process of getting to a point where I can show what I've learned, how I've progressed, and what I've done. Uh, Another said, I love working hard. The little victories are really sweet. I almost like beating teammates on a workout more than beating our opponents during a race. Um, Another said, there's something satisfying about doing something really, really well. Uh, And then this is what a coach said. "Uh, I compete to win, but I also compete to learn. I love the challenge of it all. It's a hard test. Competition is revealing about how well I prepared. The level of excellence competition helps me be a better person. At its core, humans compete to be valued, to be loved, to belong. But it's all meaningless in a vacuum. It's all about the meaning you put onto it. Uh, Lastly, uh, an athlete said, I hate losing. It sucks. I really like going after my teammates, sitting down next to them on the erg and just trying to beat them. It makes me better. It makes them better. Competition drives progress. So... That was some of the conversations I had. I had some others that I didn't write down after this, actually. Um, And so some of the themes that I pulled out of these things were um, one competition was rewarding in and of itself, regardless of the outcome. Uh, Competition is challenging and challenging yourself to reach a new level is fun and satisfying. Uh, Competition is an expression of effort and time spent. It's a celebration of the process. Um, competition is an opportunity to learn about myself and my preparation. And competition is related to winning and losing, but I found it's not dominated by it. So when I kind of came out of this, I was really like struck by, okay, winning and losing was a part of it, but there was just this vast diversity of, of answers that I got. Um, and it really made me start to think about... Um, you know, why, why, why do people really compete? And is it more related to the process? You know, as I had mentioned last time, I think that was the the one thought I kind of cohesively got out was, was it's related to the process. And so I just spent some time thinking about, you know, how, How does competition show through in the day-to-day work that athletes do? Um, And I think what it comes down to is competition is a guidepost in the process. The process is the goal. And so as long as the process is moving and there are competitions along the way that show progress, then the system is kind of running smoothly. Um, And that's the way I really feel like a lot of athletes look at it. Um, I I think it's it's like the what they're doing during training is really the it's really the the the, the reason why they're doing it. it that's that's what they're in love with and the competition is like okay, now I get to go and test this puzzle that I've that I've put together. Um, and actually I I do think I kind of came up with a a good analogy using, this kind of puzzle um, you know I guess yeah puzzle analogy uh, and, and I'll just I'll just read that because it's just a short paragraph, but I think it really gets it at, at what I'm trying to say. Um, so I said there's also an element of strategy and problem solving and adaptation to competition. The process is a puzzle to put together and the question is, can I figure out how to put this puzzle together a bit better than somebody else? And I don't think I'd be able to optimize my puzzle ability unless I knew I was going to face someone else who was putting their own puzzle together and they were trying to do it better than me. So even if there wasn't a competition at the end and there was some some kind of comparison for me to know how well uh, I constructed my puzzle. If I could not compare to anyone else's puzzle, I'd be pretty lost about how well I was doing. I might see progress over time, but there's an element of competition that creates a sense of pressure, urgency, and ultimately drives progress. Pressure creates diamonds. If I was putting together this puzzle on the moon, all alone with no one else putting their puzzle together, I would never get to test my ability and I think I'd become complacent. Competition allows me to see how well I've put the puzzle together and gives me the information to go back and tweak my process. So maybe I can get a little better here. Maybe I can shave off a second there. Um, You don't get that without the stress test of competition. Uh, You don't get that just putting the puzzle together in a vacuum. So I don't think competition is all about the outcome. Um, It's about the iterations, about the problem solving, optimization, and the enjoyment that competition affords because it informs the process. Um, As I mentioned before, uh, the process is the goal. And competitions are there to kind of optimize this thing that we actually love, which is the journey. It's the process itself. Um, so that's that's kind of my idea, is that is that I think there's, there's a lot more compatibility there because I, I do think that although winning and losing is this thing that I think a lot of athletes talk about, I think when you really ask them, like, why do you compete? It's really a lot more about like, the 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 journey, the process, all the stuff that we talk about in mindfulness. Um, now, I guess the the other side of that that I really that I wanted to highlight as well, though, is that I think there is a spectrum of you know kind of what Keith alluded to, a spectrum of understanding or a spectrum of practice when it comes to mindfulness, and I think it goes from you know the less mature end of the spectrum of what people might learn right when they start start practicing mindfulness, you know, um, you know breath, breath awareness, uh, just kind of the basic practices. And then I think that kind of goes up through learning about some of the, the concepts of non-striving and non-attachment, and non-judgment. And then I think that goes up to where Tim is approaching, which is really understanding uh, the, the philosophical underpinnings and having practiced for many, many years and having spent months in silent retreat and, and all of that. And, and I think when you get to that side, you know, as you progress up through the spectrum, I do think that incompatibilities become more and more glaring. Um, so I'll shut up now. That was, that was kind of like some of my thoughts about it.
0: that that's awesome. Thank you for, uh, for summarizing all of that. And thank you for doing that informal research. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. Oh, wow. I just, yeah, it's was interested yeah. Well, as scientists, practitioners, we appreciate that very much. And <laughs> it's great that you have this, uh, this sample right there at your fingertips that you can ask them these questions. Well, I, I will just have a very quick response and then I want to turn it over to Tim and get all his thoughts. Um, I, I find myself, and, and I'm trying to, I find myself really wanting to believe what you just said find myself really really wanting to to believe that that this is what motivates most athletes like it's fascinating it's great I mean part of part of what comes up for me is like wow you sound like you have a heck of a team it sounds like you guys have a pretty darn healthy culture within your team and and guys are competing for what sound like pretty idyllic reasons um I guess my experience doing this for a long time is, and maybe it's just that I see a subset of the population. But I, I, what's notably absent from everything that you said, Taylor, is fear, and and that's just such a big part of my day to day experience doing sports psychology work. Um, you know, to to hear that total absence from what you were told, it it makes me optimistic and skeptical at the same time. Um, you know like if these guys were were if you were talking to them while they were on the water at head of the charles and really doing it would it be the same thing or or you know is it is it a little bit easier to to say those things because they're kind of the right things to say and what people know you know is sort of the the healthier mindset and and so i I'm, I'm not saying that they would like mislead you i'm not saying anything negative about about your your team but more so just how how much is that really internalized? It makes me super, super curious. And, and the other thing that it makes me curious about is the difference in how we're talking about competition versus what I've always thought of as sort of the the idyllic big brother of competition, which is mastery. Like, it sounds like what, what your athletes and what your coaches are talking about, Taylor, is the pursuit of mastery. And that competition is one step along the way in the pursuit of mastery. Um, And I think that if that was what sport really believed and that was how sport really worked, this would be a much healthier system, Mm -hmm. a much healthier system. Unfortunately, I guess I, and maybe part of it too is just the, you know, the, the the fandom of pro sports is a part of this separate from being athletes themselves. Um, But the, the getting stuck on particular data points you know like like overreacting to a performance as as great or terrible and what it means about us as people or what it means about us as a team and our ultimate success i i think that that there are ways that competition can be used as a part of that process that loses the process um that that competition takes on an inflated sense of importance and so if if what we're saying is that that competition is is just these data points in the greater journey of an athlete's career or a, or a a team season i'm i'm all on board for that i just wonder how much that's idealization versus reality
1: yeah it's good points uh keith and and i think that yeah i think my um population is maybe a little biased here um <laughs> i think uh the coach, the head coach who's been in this, at this university for around 10 years has really created a culture of, of a uh, very absent of fear, I think. Um, and it, 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 it it does seem very much like what you just described of, of like, yeah, we, we do want to win. Like that, that's, that's not, that's definitely in line with like a big part of like why we go out there and do it. Um, but it's, it doesn't dominate it, you know, like I said, and um, but I, I do also recognize that um, this maybe isn't indicative of of sports as a whole uh, or, or athletes perceptions as a whole, but even even when we came off the water, now we did have a pretty successful weekend. I will say that uh, we didn't win; we got second in a few boat classes. Actually, I'm like, oh, I will, I will tutor horn a little bit. We we ended up winning the team points trophy at the Charles, so that was cool. That was like the entire team, the the Which,
2: men. The- I mean, that's just for our listeners who aren't familiar. The head of the Charles is the biggest regatta in north america it is the biggest race that happens all year now granted it's a head race normally crew and mount sprint races but this is a huge that's a huge deal
1: yeah yeah it was fun yeah it was good uh
0: congratulations
1: thanks um but you know our individual boats they you know they got second in their races and so they didn't win they got beat but Mm -hmm. they did really well and so coming off the water It was like everybody was really stoked because of the effort and it wasn't like, ah, shoot, we didn't win. It was just like, wow, that was really good. Look at this energy. And we were talking about just the energy and the momentum and how the team was feeling and just everybody had smiles on their faces, even the boats that respectively like didn't do as well as the other boats. They were still like, you know what? We went out and we executed like what we wanted to execute. And we thought we had like the best, you know, the, the best race this boat has had. So it was just like super positive. And so, yeah, maybe my, maybe my sample is a little bit uh uh conf- confounded. I don't know how what you would say in the scientific
0: community. Maybe, but maybe your, your team is onto something. Yeah. Right. Maybe. I mean, that's part of what we were talking about last time too, is, is if the attitude follows the results or the results follow the, attitudes, and I think, If you're saying that that, you know, part of what I'm hearing sounds idyllic and it makes me want to trust it but be dubious of it. I mean, to to hear, I mean, I've gotten to learn a little bit about your team just just from you and and meeting a couple of your colleagues, Taylor. I mean, that's that's amazing. That's amazing. And it's probably not an accident if you've been able to create or your coaches, your head coach has been able to create an atmosphere largely devoid of fear. That's that's incredible.
1: But I think yeah I think the 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 point of all this was you know I I think we we got to a point last time where we had characterized mindfulness and we, you know quite well and and Tim I think had done that quite well and then Keith I think you had brought the depth conversation into it and and we kind of got to this point where there there might be different levels and different um you know different levels of compatibility and and shades of gray and paradoxes um, but I feel like we, we hadn't really done it on the competition side. And I think there, you, you could look at it as, as maybe, the, you know, on different teams or, or even between different athletes, perhaps one athlete's perception of competition is very compatible with mindfulness at some level. And another athlete's perception or another team's perception is just completely not. So That's kind of where I got with my reflection was like, well, if there are these different shades of mindfulness, maybe there are these different shades of competition.
2: Yeah. Well, it does seem like, uh, you know, I think what you're describing it speaks to like why, like, like why why a team would want to potentially embrace this mindset, mindfulness, you know, that it does allow for for a focus on mastery experiences. You know, it allows for competition to feel like, like these really ideal conditions for which we get to kind of experience where our edge is. Um, and right, there's something about, I liked what you were saying about, if I'm doing this puzzle on the moon, you know, it's like, I, like there's something about having other people involved in that to be like, oh, like, so that I can orient myself to where my edge is in terms of like, what what is the, you know, if we want to call it like the maximal human capacity to you know what's the fastest possible mile that could ever be run what's the fastest possible race that could ever be rode you know and like maybe something something useful about having that that kind of benchmark not necessarily to judge ourselves as like better or worse than that benchmark but to use it just to orient ourselves towards like huh how do i how do i make sense of this experience of my edge and even if i am you know quote unquote falling falling short if i don't come in first place you know, I can still recognize, like, "Ooh, we like we squeezed ourselves here. We pushed ourselves to the absolute edge, um, and we got to see how we responded to that." You know, and like, um, in some ways, it is, it's a, it's a, it's kind of a, a, a privilege to be able to choose the nature of our suffering, right? Like Pema Chodron talks about this, about like the, the squeeze, she calls it. I mean, the way that the, the our lives or the universe or whatever might throw something at us kind of this this intense kind of pressure um, and we will find our edge oftentimes when we don't when we don't want to when we're not expecting to and we kind of observe how do I how do I respond in that in that circumstance you know and so like I think sports athletics competition is a, is a way to very purposefully kind of curate experiences where we get to See our see our edge. And of course, that's not incompatible with mindfulness practice because it's, I mean, would you say that yoga is incompatible with mindfulness practice? Would you say that a meditation retreat is incompatible with mindfulness practice? Of course not. But those experiences are also like, what's my edge? Like, let me go dwell at that edge and see how I respond to it. Like, you know, if you go to a traditional Vipassana meditation retreat, you meditate for 10 hours a day, like that, you are gonna meet your edge, (laughs) you know, and then. And you're not necessarily comparing yourself to another person, but yeah, I think there's something quite powerful about that idea of inviting in this experience that can be oriented around mastery, right? Not comparing yourself to other people, not trying to be superior to other people, but uh, yeah, to see what your experience is meeting and meeting your edge, being in that squeeze.
0: Let me ask you a question about, that was just really interesting the conference contrast you set up you said mastery not comparing yourself not needing to be better than other people are those things mutually exclusive is there ever a time because i mean that is the definition of competition is literally comparing yourself to others trying to outdo the performance of somebody else that that is what we do when we compete and like I, I described earlier, I see mastery as sort of the idyllic carrot that we're chasing as we compete, right? I think it, it puts things in a very different perspective than I have to win, you know? So do, do you see those things as mutually exclusive or do you see them as, as potentially related?
2: Well, I mean, I guess I'm, you know, whenever we're in a space where 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 we can determine, oh, X is better than Y. Right, I always try to recognize, like, if you take take a far enough step back, like we created the parameters that define why X is better than Y, right? So you can say in a particular race, let's use crew as the example, right? We've used the metric of time, right? So you're like, okay, oh, we we can directly compare. You were faster than that other boat, therefore you are better, right? But we could we could choose any number of other metrics, right? That like, well, you know, this boat. Taylor was talking about just like the, the feel, the run of the boat, something that's in some ways, like, I mean, there are some objective pieces of that, but there's something very subjective about what it feels like to like row a good race and to be in synchrony. And, and, and we don't use that as a metric, you know, no style points, (laughs) you know? And so it's like, okay, like, I don't think mastery is just about the time, right? It's not just about the single metric that we might use. Um, I think there are so many other pieces, and some of them are purely internal and purely subjective. It's like what it feels like for me to do this thing, which I don't think, like I said, you know, being able to compare a, a particular time or a particular approach, it helps orient us in some way. But it's only like one piece of that of that picture, because um, like that way uh, that um, again, using crew as an example, right? Uh, there are lots of different approaches to rowing. You know, the Canadians lead way far back. And, you know, and, and so like you can have two boats that run a race that row very differently. And are you saying, well, oh, so the winner, because they use this particular technique, that's what mastery looks like. Well, no, I would say, no, you can use this other technique. and You've mastered that other technique and that other technique can feel, feel really good. Um, so, yeah, I think we need to be pretty pretty curious about like why we're using the particular metric we're using when we when we talk about competition. I think that's part of what feeds into the, I mean, that illusion piece. It's like, oh, this seems to be totally objective. And like if you're faster than this other person, like that's how you win at the sport. It's like, don't forget, like we, we chose that like that's how we're doing the measurement. There's nothing objective about that. We chose it.
0: So it's interesting. Cause I found myself like w- when you were saying Okay, time, and I, I understand the point that you're making. like t- time is something we've created to make this determination. So going faster means better. And and maybe that's where there's room to kind of thread this needle between mindfulness and competition and and try to kind of get them on the same page. Like like Tim, I, something I've learned from you, uh, one of your one of my favorite phrases that I've heard you talk about is, how we own emotions essentially. And, and, you know, I am sad versus I feel sad, right? Like this, this way we own states and, and Taylor, I'm so struck by your, your conceptualization that you were sharing before. Like if if we think about competition as a part of a journey and, and ideally a journey toward mastery and that each thing that happens is a data point, not as an end all be all, but as one indicator that we can then grow from to get better. And I, and I love the quote, I believe it's Daniel Pink. I apologize if I'm getting this wrong, but I, I think I've referenced this before on our podcast. The idea that mastery is an asymptote, right? That that mm-hmm. that mathematical expression where a curve is getting closer and closer to a line, but never quite reaching it. And, and that's why mastery is this gold standard of of motivation because it's, it's endless. It's bottomless. You never, ever, ever get to the finish line. You can always get better. And so when we say, okay, time, you know, this, this boat went faster than this boat. So on this day, this boat went faster. And so therefore they quote unquote one, that doesn't mean they're better. Right. And, and maybe that's part of what gets lost or even like, um, you know, we're recording this at a time where the MLB playoffs are still going on. And if anyone is following the MLB playoffs, there were several hundred win teams this season and all of them are out. All of them lost early to these teams that had worse records but got hot, um, including my beloved Phillies. So I'm, I'm sort of excited about where they're at right now. Um, could I say that the Phillies are better than the Braves? You know, can I can I say that even though they eliminated them from the playoffs, the Braves had far more wins in the regular season? How, how are we determining better? We're using wins as an objective metric to see who finished ahead of who. There's a competitive definition there. But how you know we get so wedded, so attached to these ideas of better, who is better, who is the better player? What's the top 10? What are the power rankings? Right. And, and maybe that's where things go sideways.
2: Yes, I like. I think there. I, I I agree. You know, and I think another piece of this, going back to that idea of you know, competitions being these these data points in an ongoing journey, right? The way that we even construct sports seasons, that like there is a beginning and an end. There's like a championship, and that's like the quote unquote last competition, and so that somehow it gains this this kind of outsized importance. Did you win the championship? Because that's how you figure out who the best is, right? But then you just have another season, you know, it just like it just keeps going. Um and, and for whatever reason I find myself thinking about that analogy. Thich Nhat Han uses it of like, like the way of, of like a flower, right? And that you plant a seed and a flower grows, and eventually the flower dies. But it's not as if that flower is just gone, right? That flower decays and becomes the soil and then another seed, perhaps from that very same flower, kind of roots in that soil and becomes a new flower. Right? It's it's it might take on an incredibly different form, um, but it's just part of this cycle that goes on and on and on. Of course, that's what that's what sport is. Now, for any given athlete, like their career has a beginning and an end, right? But but yeah, I think if we can embrace it more as like I am part of something that's bigger than myself right? And I get to contribute to it for this limited amount of time. And any one competition doesn't really matter in the same way that like a circle has no starting point or end point. It's just a circle. It keeps going and going and you can pick. And if you pick, it's kind of arbitrary where nope, the circle starts here. Um, Actually, I remember when I, one of my first coaching jobs, um, the one of my interview questions was like, describe this, describe the stroke. Like, where does the stroke start?
0: And I was like, "Oh, that's such an interesting
2: question. Um, does you are, are you someone who says the stroke starts at the finish or the start of the catch? You know, and it's like, oh no, it's it's a it's a cycle that, and each part influences and influenced by all the other parts. It's that interconnectedness or that integration piece. And so, yeah, I think we we we." Carve out one specific competition, be like this Olympics or this championship. Like that's it. And that's where we're gonna determine who who the best is. But yeah, Keith, I, I really like what you're saying. It's just one moment in time. Um, no more or less important than any other moment in time, and <laughs> just one continuous flow of moments in time. And but we just decide, no, this moment is actually more important than all the other moments. Like that's a kind of a funny thing to do when you think about it.
0: It is, and yet we're celebrating that. University of Pennsylvania just won the head of the Charles team competition, right? Like, I mean, there is something too about this was a big, a big race. This was a big regatta.
1: Yeah, I I get what you're saying. You know, it's it's. I think I think from a coaching perspective, it it is it is about you know having championships and like determining you know who is the best. It 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 really does have something to do though with the ability to get a team to its peak. And so when you were talking about the Phillies, when you're talking about, you know, the the MLB playoffs, you know, I, I, I coached for a coach once who said uh, one of his favorite things to say was keep the main thing, the main thing, or, the main thing is to keep the main thing, the main thing. Mm-hmm. And the idea was like the regular season doesn't really matter. Right. The regular season is is, yeah, we're looking at all those things as as guideposts along the way. And it's there is a certain element of of skill creating high performance habits and getting everybody on the same page together that you can get a group of people producing a performance on a specific day. Um, and you've you've planned that day out for the last nine months. And and you then get that performance out of that team on that day. And I think that there's something to be said about that. And that does take that does take a lot of skill to do. Um, so like when you when you talk about like, are the Phillies better than the Braves? Well, yeah, I think they did this thing better than them, which was run the entire season, which is like what, 160 games and get to the end, and that's where their peak has happened. And the Braves didn't do that as well. They spent themselves early. They won a bunch of games during the regular season, but then they fizzled out. So, like, yeah, on that day, maybe the Phillies were better, you know, when the when they eliminated the Braves, like during that series, like the Phillies got it done and they were better. And you no, know, the Braves, the Braves beat the Phillies, right? Like during one or two of those games. I can't remember what the series ended at. But um yeah, they they were in my mind, they they were managed better and they they kept the main thing, the main thing. And yeah, I get what you're saying as well, Tim. Of like, yeah, we've we've we have artificially created these metrics just like we've artificially put value on a piece of paper and said that if I give you this piece of paper for ten dollars, you know, it's called ten dollars, you'll give me uh, you know, or if I give you whatever your he is for therapy you'll give me 50 minutes of your time right but that's completely meaningless in real life i mean it's a piece of paper that's uh what uh, you know if you actually put a value on it it might to create that piece of paper might be like 0.01 cents i don't know um and even 0.01 cents has no even you know right so so you see what i'm saying like i see that that we've put these metrics on things. But even when you guys were talking about mastery, the, the thing that kind of kept coming to my mind was like, <clears throat> you you can't know if you have mastered something, if you're the only person in the world. Like if well, I'm, well, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead.
2: Oh yeah. I think that's a really important point. And like, well, I have two, two thoughts. One, yeah, it's just like to not forget that, right. We, we create those metrics. And I think there's nothing, it's not, it's like, bad to say like no this is how we're going to measure it you have to perform in this particular way on this particular day like it's about peaking right but i could and i mean i'm maybe speaking out of turn because i actually know nothing about the sport but i'm pretty sure f1 right the champion is not about winning a single race it's about your point total over the course of the whole season you know like we could just as easily do that in fact we could have say baseball set up the exact same way except you don't actually win a full championship until you're able to win the world series three years in a row like and that's the metric that we're using because not only do you need to peak but you need to be consistently right like we we just we we mix and match we create the conditions we've made up what it means to do the quote-unquote best so i think to be able to to recognize that allows us to separate ourselves out from like oh so i am good or bad or i am better or worse like no no i just this the particular approach the main thing we've chosen to be the main thing like okay like it just so happens that like that worked out well for me this time right put a lot of effort there but could just have easily decided that the main thing was going to be something else. Um, But to this point about like, we need other people. I mean, that's that too is absolutely embedded in mindfulness, in Buddhism, right? The three jewels of Buddhism, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, right? Our Buddha nature, the Buddha's teachings, and our community. Like in some ways, you can't have Buddhism without community. So this, this whole philosophy that, that essentially teaches you, if you look deeply enough, there's, there's no self, non-self, not there. That also requires other people to come together, be part of a community. Because the reality is you know, such a significant part of our pain and suffering is relational. Um, and if, we, if, we're, if we're gonna be able to do all the things that we think are quote unquote good, to be patient, to be compassionate, to be generous all of those things require other people right we do not get the opportunity to be generous unless we meet someone else who is in need right we do not get the opportunity to be compassionate unless we meet someone else who is in pain um and so so yeah i think whether we you know we can put it within the realm of competition but i you know to really embrace mindfulness like whether it's competition or the workplace or a family like we're talking about sangha we're talking about community, like whatever we do, right? A mastery experience, even if it's the mastery of meditation, right? Absolutely. I think it, it requires other people.
0: So as, as we bring this in, cause I know we're, we're short on time again, I feel like, gosh, we could have probably done a third episode on this, but <laughs> it seems like where we've gotten to shockingly in a topic like this is that it depends. <laughs> it depends how we're defining competition. It depends on how we're defining mindfulness. And and maybe the takeaway here is that we don't want to box anything in, that we don't want to reduce mindfulness to, to something that is like Tim, we talk a lot about an MSPE. Like MSPE is a flexible program, bend but don't break. And eventually you can break it. And and if you broaden that out to mindfulness, that that there are certain certain ways that that mindfulness can perhaps be more functional in addition to being philosophical. But if you make it so functional, that it becomes transactional or it becomes, you know, a, a tool as opposed to a way of being that that you break it. And that competition in and of itself, there are lots of parts of it that might resonate very well with, with mindfulness, but there's also definitions of competition that don't so much. And maybe we can do another episode on this because I, I think that it just, we could just keep going around and around because Taylor, when you were saying what you were saying about um, the regular season doesn't matter. I was like, oh, but that's not compatible with my. <laughs> I was like, if we just say wait, so so the, 160 games don't don't matter. What have they been doing for all of this time? <laughs> I know how you meant that. I <laughs> understand. You know the that that you meant that more in the sense of well, to determine a champion, it's about playing the whole season, not just that one part, and then not finishing the job. I, I get that, but but I think there is this approach right I mean even something like tanking in sports is such a hot topic like tanking on purpose to get a higher draft pick and you know like I mean it's such a rich area to start really piecing competition apart and and look at well that sounds like there's a lot of elements maybe the more mastery-based elements that are very much in line with mindfulness and the community-based elements but if if you're doing it based in fear if you're doing it based on this is important this isn't you know, or this is a waste of time, and this is the most important thing in the world. That that's where maybe that's what creates the fear. Maybe that's part of what gets us into a decidedly unmindful space. So you guys sort of agree that it. I guess it. It depends. Is is sort of our consensus answer?
2: Yeah, yeah, right. We if if we're the
0: ones making up what competition is, like
2: yeah, totally. totally. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Tim, I keep thinking of that that scene in the Matrix. Where where Keanu Reeves walks into the Oracle's place, and you know there is no spoon. That's the part that's you know there is no spoon. You're the there is no spoon guy, right? Like,
1: <laughs> there, in, in my in my reflection, I I did. There was a a part where I, you know, because because I mean, yeah, like Tim, you have a way of like getting down to the 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 code of of rea- of reality. Um, of our reality, you know, like if we think about like computer programming, like you're down at like the, the code level and you're like, well, we have we've coded this whole thing anyway. So it's, it's, I actually had in my reflection be like, okay, if we assume that <laughs> we are indeed separate beings and competition is a worthwhile, like not absurd endeavor, then, and I, then <laughs> I like went from there because I'm just like, well, could just like debunk this whole thing because you could say well we're all just the same anyway like what are you talking yeah, about we're all living you know? in a simulation okay yeah yeah let's like let's just start <laughs> let's start really here. About,
2: actually about like trying to prove that we might all be living in a simulation
0: <laughs> <laughs> well there Tim, all i gotta there's... say is thank goodness you're not a total cynic because if you were a total cynic and had that that sort of code level like taylor saying that would be scary the fact that you remain an optimist and I think genuinely try to see the good in all of this. That's, I think that's, yeah, awesome. I
2: think, right. I think a lot of people will take oh, that so nihilistic, right. It doesn't make everything up. Nothing matters, but it's like, no, I think it's so full of hope. It's so liberating of like, Oh, right. It's telling you, you even, this embedded in some of the responses. Like we get to choose, right. We get to choose why competition is meaningful. We get to choose how we spend our time and what matters to us and how we want to be in this world. And it's like that, because there's no inherent right or wrong, right. It's like that. Oh, wow. Like that's a, that like I could orient my life around reducing suffering. Like that's a really profound thing to be able to choose to do. Um, and the fact that there are human beings who make that choice. It's like,
0: I think it's pretty amazing.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, we do have to leave it there, but thank thank you guys both. Taylor, thanks for putting all the work in between yes. recordings yeah, yeah. here and I love your thoughts. Thank you for, for sharing those. Um, and just to do our, our quick wrap up, I just also want to thank our colleague, Dr. Carol Glass, for all of her support of our podcast. We did try to rope her in for this one, but she is she is stubbornly refusing to join us. We're, we're going to try to get her in some way. But when we were talking to her off, off recording as well about some of this, she had some fascinating perspectives. So, um, Carol, if you're listening at some point, we're going to get you. Um, And if you'd like to connect with us, the the MSP Institute, it's www.mindfulsportperformance.org. We also have a Facebook page and Instagram page. You can find us connect with us that way. Um, Our podcast has an Instagram page at mindful underscore sport underscore spot podcast. And we also have a YouTube channel where we post all of the meditations that our guests uh, have led and do lead on on our pods. So check that out if you're looking for a wonderful free meditation resource, meditation library. Um, I am also on Twitter and Instagram, both uh, having the handle at mindfulsport. You can also read about our MSPE work and our book, mindful sport performance enhancement, mental training for athletes and coaches. And we are always uh, appreciative and welcoming of your reviews and ratings of our book and of our podcast. Um, And if you are so inclined this year uh, on our Buzzsprout page that houses our our podcast, you are able to uh, help support us uh and and sort of offsetting the the cost that we have for running the pod um so if you are inclined to do that please visit our buzzsprout page and there'll be a link to that in our show notes uh so thank you to everyone who listened i uh, hope this was enjoyable and thought-provoking uh and thank you taylor and tim and we'll see you next time Thanks